Welcome to the Operation Brewery podcast. Now, this isn't the usual voice that you're used to hearing. Um, so I'm Leah. I am the Chair Force Manager at Black Ops. And today I interviewed Dan Norris, our co-founder and CEO of Black Ops. So we've sat down and had a chat. This is basically a Q&A session. Um, I hope you guys enjoy it. And before I go, I just want to say thanks so much for listening and supporting this podcast this year. Whenever we are out and about and people say, I listen to your podcast, it really does mean the world. Um, this is probably the last one that we'll do for the year. So hope you enjoy it. All right. So Dan, I think that most of our listeners probably already know the founding story of Black Ops. So I'm just going to go right into it and ask some questions all around growth. And uh, we've also got some questions from our, from our ambassadors that we'll get to as well. Um, so how did the transition happen in the early days uh, at Black Ops for all three founders to move in, into a full-time role? Okay, wait, is this your question or is this someone else's question? This is my question. All right. <laughs> We're going to start with my questions and then I'll tell you when we go over to ambassador okay, questions. Okay, that's a good question. Um, well, I think, I think when we started, I, was, I had another business and Eddie had a full-time job. Gov's like, like we, could, we could exist without me for sure and we could, we could kind of exist without Eddie for, at least for a little while because Gov's was like contract brewing the beer. He could do that. Um, when we opened the brewery, the plan was always for Govs and Eddie to work full time. So Govs left his job, Eddie left his job, and um, I was sort of planning on just keeping doing my business at that point. I think I think we just thought it was just going to be a bit of fun, and then we realised it probably it, it took quite a while, probably like six months or maybe even a year, and then we realised like this is actually going to be way bigger than just this little fun side project. And I'd sold my business in between, which was just like a very lucky, fortunate thing to happen. And I didn't really have anything else. I was sort of thinking about what else to do and had a few ideas, but it was just good timing. It was like, well, actually this requires more people full-time. So I started working full-time as well. Yeah, wow. And so what about the decision to employ someone? Because in the early days of business, that's very risky. You might not have the financial capacity to do it. So I guess, how did you identify the need versus resources to employ, but then actually make that leap? We still don't have the financial capacity to employ people. <laughs> um, well, we, well, A, we, we didn't know anything about sales. Like the original plan was I would do like business stuff, but it was going to be like sort of part-time. Guys would do the production and Eddie would do sales. Um, and it, it wasn't long before Eddie realized he didn't really want to do that, which, and none of us wanted to do that. So it wasn't like I was going to do it. It wasn't like Guys was going to do it. Um, and then also I think like at the time Eddie was sort of doing sales but also running the tap room and I, I feel like he probably didn't really want to do that either like full time. So we eventually over the period of like six months found someone to do sales and to manage the tap room so Eddie could, could sort of figure out the stuff he was good at which took, it took us all a while to figure out what we were good at except for Govs because we knew he was good at making beer. <laughs> um, but yeah, so our first hire was a salesperson and then... Um, Raylo at the time was doing, I think he started in the bar from memory, just casual. And for quite a while, he was doing like sales and bar stuff and eventually only sales. But that were the two things that we kind of didn't want to do and didn't feel like we were particularly good at doing. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Um, and what about finances to make that leap? Um, that's a good question. I'm just trying to think. I think back then it was pretty, 
like we didn't have that many costs. Like I wasn't getting paid at all. Um, Eddie was getting, I think Eddie was getting paid like not much. Um, and we just had this one site, one lease. Most, we didn't have much of a wholesale business. It was mostly tap room. Like we weren't losing money really. It was, it was um, we were probably losing a little bit of money, but, it, but they weren't big numbers back then. So I was like, okay, well we need a little bit to hire someone. We pretty much just did it and figured that at some point we would need to raise more money again when we ran out of money. And yeah, I, I don't think we've ever actually really had enough money to hire people confidently knowing that we've got heaps of cash. It's been more like, okay, we need to hire the person and then if we need more money, we go and raise more money. Yeah. But we yeah. got through, I think we raised a little bit more money just before we opened because we had a delay opening and we ran out. Um, and that got us through kind of six months and then we did another raise when we expanded. Yeah. So how do you determine what gets done? So for example, for those that don't know, Dan is my boss. Um, so we in the chair force work on a lot of things that may not always be the highest priority to the business. So for example, maybe we're getting um, certain types of merch or getting some staff shirts organized, but how do you, when we're all so busy, determine like what gets our attention? I just give it all to you and you do it all. <laughs> and then if you can't do it, you give it all to Bonnie and she does it all. <laughs> Works pretty well. All right. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know. But priorities really is a tricky one because like a lot of this, a lot of the stuff we do, it's not urgent, but it is really important. Like all the branding stuff I always think is really, really important. It's not, it's the easiest stuff to say no to because, you know, you're not going to go out of business if you don't print t-shirts. But like five years on of caring about our brand it shows so some of those things are yeah I, I think you know you know intuitively that they are important even if they're not urgent um and i don't really know how we decide what we don't do versus what we do do i think i probably probably do too much feels like at the moment we're saying yes to too much and not saying no enough um but yeah i don't know yeah. i don't know if i have a good good answer well that one. on that branding can you talk a little bit, because you've got a big marketing background, can you talk us through growing your business and branding and what things need to be considered in the early days? Yeah, well, the, the branding's always been, it's been another thing where we've like never really been able to afford to put what we needed into it. The, the very first design, well, the very, very first design I did myself, which was woeful, but it was just like a bit of fun. <laughs> and we realized we needed a better one. I hired a designer with my own money to, to design us like a black ops brand just before we started and it was terrible and i paid for it personally and it was just like but we couldn't really afford to get someone really good and it was also like a, it's, it was kind of a tricky brand to design for um and then we were like okay we need to scrap this and do it properly and we paid a really good designer a, a reasonable amount of money in hindsight not a lot of money based on the value of the brand now but i think it was like 10 grand or something it's probably more than we paid any designer for anything since um and at that point it was really just like we kind of don't have the money but we need to actually have a good brand if we're going to put hundreds of thousands of dollars into this and get investors to put hundreds of thousands of dollars in we can't do this with a shit brand yeah so you think that like for us we were able to start with a brand that maybe wasn't up to that level because we didn't have investors uh well, well i mean by the time we actually physically opened a brewery we had the brand all done and sorted and it was great. It was, it was the time before that when it was basically evolving from home, literally homebrew to, you know, something fun to an actual proper business. And during that time, I was like, well, this has been fun, but if we're going to start a business and we're going to put 
like basically every cent we have into it and other people's money into it, then we need to do it properly. Yeah. And what about, I guess, options for rebranding in the future? So we've just done a can rebrand. Um, when when does that become viable? Um, I don't know. I kind, I kind of think like with, with our brand, we there's probably a lot of reasons behind it. One was we were one of the first to do that sort of style of cans. And we felt that after two years or so, there was so many other breweries doing the same thing. It's like our brand just didn't look unique anymore. So that was behind it. Um, also, we, put, we had more money, so we, we could afford to do it. Um, and the third one was just the scale of the packaging meant that using labels no longer was the best solution. So we, I think we always knew that was going to come. It was just a matter of like when it was feasible. And, and it's also pretty nerve-wracking changing a brand when people really love it. So you don't want to... You, you kind of part of you doesn't want to do it, even though you know you have to do it. Um, so there's n- there's never really a good time, but that for us that's that's when it made sense. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about investors. Um, we did have a like the early podcast of Operation Breweries all about finding people to invest. But can you just give us maybe a bit of a summary for people who maybe haven't listened to that about how to go about finding investors? Yeah. Um, so for us, it's it's. Basically, like we've needed lots more money than the founders ever had from day one. Um, and so investors have been important, but there's also been other funding sources like the bank has been really good. We've done like convertible notes. We've done equipment leasing for, fi- for um, you know, candy machines and whatnot for cars, um, pre-selling. We've, we've done so many different things to get money together. Um, equity crowdfunding, normal crowdfunding. So yeah, the investors is is part of it and probably I'd say most of our money, definitely most of our money has come from investors in one way or another. Um, for us, it was more like family and friends type, like friends of the brewery that invested in Black Ops. It, it's, we didn't go down the path of like finding institutional investors, which if we never have to, that would be awesome. But for the vast majority of companies trying to do what we do, that is what people have to do. Either, yeah. either the founders or the founding team have a lot of money, which you're seeing now with some breweries opening they have a healthy amount of money to start with um, or you need to get some investors in or like a strategic investor who owns another big brewery, something like that. But in, in our industry, it's, it's kind of like, that's like the kind of the first steps towards selling out. And I feel like once you do that, it's the kind of the writings on the wall. So we've just, I've just always tried to avoid that. Yeah. You've always been pretty open and candid about brewery growth to the point of, um, when companies need to be bought out by a, a bigger company. Um, what's like, can you talk us through how companies get to that point? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I've never been at that point. So, oh, well, that's not true. I did sell my last business, but that was more because it was, I was ready to move on and someone offered me money and it was good. But that, yeah. that never, that's never what you hear in craft beer. It's never like we sold because someone offered us a shitload of money, even though that probably is true half the time. Um, but I assume what happens is it's just an incredibly intense business to run. It puts so much pressure on the staff and the founders and the investors that founders get to the point where they get burnt out or like financially the business just needs more money than they can get together. Um, I think that's reading between the lines. I think that's what almost always happens. Um, for us, we've been able to avoid that, but we're right at the stage now where we're making like a really big leap um 
and it's kind of like at this stage or like the next stage where where companies kind of fall into that trap where they just run out of money yeah and it's just it's really hard to keep getting the original investors to put money in that's something Volta mentioned with their sale they, they kind of said well there's I think 50, 50 investors like Black Ops like they've, they've got as many investors as we do and um, a lot of those I'm, I'm sure those investors put a lot more money in than ours did and at some point you know they want that money back and it's hard to go back to them and say well you will get it back but we need more and we've done that a few times gone back to our investors and said we, we need more um but it's hard to do that so you kind of almost need to find new investors each time or new ways of raising funds and that's why equity crowdfunding has been good for us because that was another way we could raise money um but yeah i think i think if, if you if you run out of ways to raise money or all founders just founders and staff just get to the point where it's just too hard I think that's when companies tend to sell. Do but you, but yeah. sorry, yeah, I was going to say you, you also have to have a buyer that wants to buy you, and um, it's also a very long process. That there's a lot of things to consider with it. Like I'm sure with the Baltimore, I think they mentioned it was happening from February onwards. I mean, you think of all the stuff that's happened in this company since February. Like we just wrote a blog post about all the shit we've done this year. Imagine a backdrop to all of that being you know, people coming in and out of the building, you knowing that they're, they're probably going to buy the business. Like that's a lot of stress and anxiety for the team as well. So you, I think you need to be prepared for all of that too. Yeah. Do you think that Black Ops would ever sell? I think every business always eventually sells or goes out of business. There's not too many that don't eventually sell. Yeah. But um, there's different ways of selling too. Like there's there's different ways of exiting like eventually our investors are going to want their money back eventually the staff aren't going to want to do what they're doing here i mean it, it could be one year it could be 20 years but in 20 years time we're not all going to be here doing the same shit we're doing now so yeah eventually eventually we won't be the ones owning black ops i assume but it's not something we're looking to action i just think that's kind of naturally what happens i mean i think the best thing that could happen would be like a listing on the stock market which doesn't happen a lot in Australia with breweries. I'm not entirely sure why, but um, Gage Road have done it. Others have done it and then been taken over because they haven't had enough of the company to hold on to it. Um, but that to me is a good way of exiting because you, you let other investors come in, but you let the old investors cash out as well. And you still have founders that own shares in the company and, and enough shares to be meaningful. I, I, I don't like the idea of selling. I, I don't personally like the idea of selling to the companies that, we've been fighting against the whole time and then just telling everyone everything's cool because that just doesn't feel right. But yeah, I, who knows? Yeah, for sure. So changing tack a little bit, what do you think are the three key elements needed to grow a craft beer brand? And on each of those points, how do you think Black Ops has done that? Well, the first one would be having a great product. Um, that would be by far and away the most important one. Um, Second one would be just having a brand that people care about. And for us, it, it's just about having something that's genuine. That's always been a, a thing with Black Ops. It's like there's no, there's just no bullshit. Like I, I, that's what I was saying with the selling. I can't imagine like Black Ops selling and then just us saying, oh, don't worry, it's all good. We're part of CUB now. Like it, that's just not, it would be weird for our brand to do that. For some brands, that's not weird. And um, there's just so many different ways to build a brand. Like look at what Bolter did was phenomenal. Um, you know what wildflower are doing is phenomenal what i think what we're doing is really good too what what your mates are doing is great there's so many different ways to do it for us it's just been about like genuinely a bunch of people starting a brewery and having a crack and that's been a nice story for our brand 
Um, but it's definitely not the only way to do it. Um, growing a brand, the third one, money. <laughs> <laughs> and how we've done it, all the reasons I just said before. But yeah, it's, it's an impossible business to grow without either, yeah, lots of money or lots of expertise in certain areas. I mean, there's probably, there's probably ways you could do it if you had like a really epic venue and you sort of bankrolled a lot of the wholesale stuff that way. Um, but I, I, I just don't know of any breweries that have been able to build a great brand without a fair bit of money. Yeah. And what would you change given the chance if you could go back to day one? Would you change anything? What would I change? Um, probably yes. <laughs> I probably would change a few things. I don't know. I don't know if I want to answer that question. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you determine business targets for us. How do you set these targets? Uh, well... The main one is like for us to get to a point where we're financially sustainable. So we, we're trying to grow into a market that's virtually impossible to grow into. Like there's just, if you try and count the brands that, that have been able to do what we do, most of them have sold or most of them have died. It's very, very challenging. So that's our main goal is to just become financially sustainable and we're getting pretty close to that, which is nice. Um, but it also has to be realistic. You can't just give people... Like I would just love to say to the sales guys, sell whatever it is, you know, a million dollars worth of beer this month. But, and even if that's what the business needs, it's not going to work. It's not going to motivate them. It's just going to burn people out and make people unhappy that they're not doing a good job. So it's always a balance between what the business needs, you know, wh what's a reasonable time frame to get there. Like at the start of the year, we, we sat down with the sales guys and we're like, this is how much we need to be selling to be financially, you know, reasonably secure. And it was so much more beer than we were selling at the time. And so it was just a case of saying, well, do you think we can do this by the end of this year? And then setting targets based loosely around that and what we think is doable for each month in between. Okay, cool. Um, I'm going to switch over to some ambassador questions now. Um, so we've got a few. Paul and Josie Lofts-Haynes asks, asks, how's the expansion interstate going and is WA on the short-term goal? Actually, this one's old. Oh, no, but I can answer that yep. still because <laughs> we just launched in WA and that's been really, really awesome. We've got a rep over there, Sam. And they, um, they've been like the best state to launch into. And that's so funny that that question's in there because that, WA was like always the state that everyone asked about the most, but it was the furthest away. So it was the one where it's like, well, we'll get to that when we can. Um, and finally, we launched there and it's going better than any of the other states which is cool. But I, yeah, the interstate stuff has been actually pretty challenging. I think when we did our last round, we were like, okay, we're doing well in Queensland. We're going to just blow up interstate now. And I think we were hit with a bit of a reality check when we did that, that it was not going to be very easy to do that because even if we were able to sell beer in the other states, we couldn't afford to put reps down there. We couldn't afford to um, send beer down there and price the beer at a rate that's competitive in that market and still make money. So... It, we've kind of changed our tact a little bit from we want to be available in the rest of Australia, but we've focused actually a lot locally, more locally this year than I thought we would. But the result has been that we're in a much better financial position. Um, but we've, yeah, we're not pushing interstate as much. I think, I think we're at about 80% local and I'm kind of happy with that. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Adam Sewell says, where do you see Black Ops in the next 12 months? Oh, I don't know. It's just, I mean, imagine like looking at that post we wrote during the week and just thinking, yeah. wow, this is all the stuff that's happened this year. Yeah. <laughs> I, have no idea. I got exhausted reading that blog yeah. post. Well, we do have some fun stuff on the cards for next year, but I don't think we're going to be doing anything 
crazy in terms of like building new breweries or anything like that or um i mean almost every year so far we've done some kind of major expansion but next year i think i hope we can just keep doing what we're doing and just everything settle down a little bit hopefully and just become a bit more financially stable and everyone everyone's so overworked at the moment i'm sort of hoping we can just balance that a little bit but still still keep growing the brand Yep. Alicia Andre asks, I got a question. If there was one thing that he could change when they first opened up the doors at HQ, what would it be? I.e. anything from a different equipment choice? Would they change the layout or add something that they didn't originally have at the start, etc.? Well, I would probably I would probably just have more money. <laughs> that, I mean, it, like we had no money. Like we, we had $8,000 budget for the, the whole tap room and like Eddie's dad basically built the whole thing we we did heaps of it ourselves like we were like i knocked down that whole wall with a fucking sledgehammer and like literally gave the the engineer a carton of beer to sign it off like (laughs) that was what we were working with at the time and it probably wasn't the best idea and if we had more money i I feel like things would have been a lot easier but having said that we have raised a lot of money since and we still have just as much anxiety and stress associated with everything so maybe it wouldn't have changed but i i did want to spend more effort on the design of the tap room when we opened. Um, but with zero money, it was just impossible to do that. Um, but we, we sort of got the opportunity to do that when we built the second site. We made sure we have enough money and we put more time and effort into the design of it. And I think you can tell when you go there that it's it's been given the attention that it needs. Um, but uh, yeah, I think we'll do that with HQ as well in, in time. Yeah, BH2 is... it's definitely hq's big brother (laughs) just slightly more refined yeah um paul simpson asks oh wait i better also add equipment wise we we shouldn't have got that fucking boiler i don't know if anyone knows that story but you can read about it in the book but yeah our second brewery which is i don't know four or five ten times the size of this one took less time to build than this one did all because of that boiler so (laughs) and it's still working we're still using it but that was, yeah, that, if, if it was a piece of equipment, we would choose that. We would buy a new one and not buy this shitty one off eBay from, uh, where did we buy it from? Bendigo from some carpet place. It was and an X, yeah. Yeah, it wasn't good. <laughs> <laughs> Paul Simpson asks, Black Hops has established a great team of people in building its success. What goes into building such a great team culture behind the scenes? Just good people. I think like a couple of really good early hires was really important. Like we, we hired Ali at the tap room and she built a whole team around her. We hired Raylo. He built a whole team around him and then you and, you know, we've, we've just, I don't even know, how, sometimes I don't even know how we found all of these great people, but we've been lucky enough to attract great people, especially the early ones. And then they've, like we, the founders haven't done much since then in terms of culture and hiring, you know, for that kind of stuff. It's more just like the team. And that was something that Jamie Cook said to me as well. He's like, once you've got that culture in place, the team kind of organically looks after a lot of that stuff for you and we noticed that happening here especially when staff weren't working out like we we would find out very quickly what what was happening and the staff themselves would make it pretty clear that you know things weren't working out and same with attracting new staff there's so many people here that have been referred by someone who works here like almost everyone here um so yeah just a couple of good people at the start and more good people since yeah jeff frampton asks as dan started out as an outsider to the craft beer industry in his words what is he determined to change about the industry through his efforts i don't feel like feel the need to change too much we were attracted to the industry because of 
you know, because it's awesome. So it's been a fun place to work. Like we didn't get into it thinking we would change it too much. It was more just like this is a cool thing to be involved in and we love being involved in it. So there's nothing crazy that I would change, I don't think. Mark Chisel asks, what brand would you love to see Black Hops work with in the future, whether it be another brewery, a distillery like Lark and Wolf of the Willows' latest collab, a business in the area or a brand like Newstead and Queensland Surf Lifesavers? Uh, Tesla or SpaceX. <laughs> <laughs> but we, so, like some, the, the Call of Duty one we did and this, this one we've just done with the Sydney to Hobart yacht race, those just came about. It's not like we've got some marketing genius behind the scenes, like pulling the strings and putting this stuff together. Like they came about by, again, purely organically and via chance. And um, that that's not stuff we really chase out at all. Like, we're, like we don't really do that many collabs. We're not really looking for a big brand to piggyback off. Like we feel like we're just growing this organically ourselves and that's not really something we're looking for. But if Elon Musk wants to give me a call and he's listening to this, <laughs> my numbers are, wait, 61... Four three four one five two nine double six. Elon, give me a uh, message me first because I sometimes don't answer my phone. I won't know it's you because I don't have your number. But he doesn't answer unknown numbers. No, so just message me, Elon, and then call me shortly <laughs> after. <laughs> All right, Brant Bamford says, can Black Ops see any benefit in teaming up with other small craft breweries to leverage purchasing power? Possible brewery pool where bulk orders for can blanks, hops, grain, etc. So think big switch, but for independent breweries. Yeah, I think this is a cool concept. I was thinking about this with the cans because we just we were talking about before how we migrated to the fully printed cans. Um, I was talking to Grum yesterday from Exit who came in to visit and he was saying that Busy just introduced a thing where they're doing 30,000 can prints for a fee which would have probably swayed us to get into printed cans quicker and printed cans are just generally better. There's less, less labels, less wastage, um, less shit that goes wrong on the canning line. So... If there was a way to do it, I think that would be cool. Um, it's probably something for the IBA maybe to think about. I don't know. Cans is really tricky though because it's it's the like going out to Vizzy, it's the process of like the place is so massive. It's th that process of printing something on a can that's different to the other cans. It's all the work that ch that goes into changing that around and then running them off. It's uh, like buying more wouldn't work unless everyone had the same can. It would work for ingredients though, wouldn't it? It could potentially bring price of some ingredients down for smaller craft breweries like hops possibly yeah possibly i don't know i mean a lot of the a lot of like because of the ingredients travel a long way and you're getting in small quantities a lot of the costs for smaller breweries are in the transportation of the ingredients as well and that wouldn't really wouldn't change too much if you're buying it with others i mean maybe there's there's things they could do with hop contracts where like a smaller breweries could get together and sign a hop contract and have more buying power that way, but um, I'm not sure. I mean, we, we do do it informally, you know, we, like when people need some extra grain, there's a lot of that that goes on or extra hops or whatever. But yeah, there's, there's probably something there, but I, yeah, I haven't really put my mind to it. Robert McKenzie, uh, where do the ideas for all the Quality Recon series brews come from? And do all the ideas go onto the must brew list or is there some ideas you scratch all together? There's some ideas we should have scratched all together. <laughs> <laughs> um, most I don't where do the ideas come from a lot of them especially early on from Eddie um and just Eddie and Gov's talking about stuff and it was just often the case of we should do this and Gov's like yeah we can do that and then they did it um a lot of them from customers like our current um this tropic like it's hot sour came from Joe who's one of our 
good friends and customers. Um, a lot of it just comes from conversation too, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, a lot of it comes from conversation and, and beers that go well, like you might tweak something slightly, like our Gabsby this year, Caribbean Haze, was a kind of a double version of the Caribbean Crusher. Um, I, I don't think, there's not really a list of must-brew things, but it's it's like if ideas float around for long enough and we think up a reason to do it, then it'll it's it's in people's consciousness and it'll come out into a beer. Um, venue collabs is another one, like venues come to us with ideas and want to do something um but yeah there's there's so many ideas i think we, we we just did the list i think we've done like what 70 beers this year or something yeah new ones yep. yeah new beers and last year was 50 so there's there's no, there's never ever any shortage of ideas and also like because us and all the staff are, are in the industry we're seeing everything else that gets made like you just there's stuff in front of your face all the time that you think could work well and then styles change like hazy's come out so it's like all right well let's do hazy's with different feature hops and that's another 10 different beers and you get into sours and you get into fruit additions and any fruit you can think of can become a different flavor for a beer. So there's, there's no shortage of ideas. Cool. Aiko Ainu says, what were the, what asks, what were some of the biggest challenges that the brewery faced or is facing and how did he overcome them? What are your learnings off the back of them? Managing obnoxious staff like Raylo was probably <laughs> high up the list. So Aiko <laughs> is Raylo's partner. <laughs> Is he out there? No, he's not out there, is he? Oh, that's good. I mean, he might listen to this though. Um, he better. What? Sorry, I, I was just thinking about how I could troll Raylo and I don't even remember <laughs> the question. In your opinion, Dan, what are the, some of the biggest challenges that the brewery has faced and how did the brewery overcome them and what are your learnings off the back of them? Okay. Um, so, well, I think financial is always one of them, just getting enough money. Like we've done, I think, nine different or well, eight different investment raises and almost every stage of our life we needed more money and that's always been a challenge. Um, staff, staff, while having a lot of good staff, has been good. We've also had some that don't work out. That's always hard. Um, quality's been hard. We just had a recall for one of our beers. Um, scaling from a small little microbrewery here to a massive product, well, a much bigger production brewery requires a whole new level of quality that we are working on and that's a massive challenge. Like it's the, the stakes are really high with that now. Like it, it never really used to be the case. If we do a small batch and something's not right, which very rarely happened, but if, if it had to get dumped or whatever, it's, you know, it's a few thousand dollars, but now it's tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands. So that's quite difficult. Um, bigger challenges. Sales has always been really hard. Like it's like just selling beer is really hard. There's a, a, so much competition. Um, there's so much cost cutting that goes into this industry, like people selling cheap kegs, venues buying, you know, getting their taps paid for and buying kegs only from people who pay for the taps and basically making it impossible for us to get in to venues that have done that. That's always really, really hard. And how we've gotten around that is just really, really good salespeople. Um, and just, just being being confident enough to say no to some venues where you know that you're just going to have to drop your pants to get in there. And if you keep doing that, you, you, it's not going to be any good for anyone. Um, what yeah. do you think? Is there more? Yeah, I think that, <laughs> I think there's a lot of challenges and I think um, how we overcome them is individual to each like unique challenge. But I think the biggest thing for us is learning from everything. Like, like you said, some staff don't work out. So we take that into the next hire and make sure that we're confident in the person that we're hiring next. And yeah. Yeah. You're kind of those. constantly solving problems, but you're never really overcoming anything. Like you could, we could, 
we could raise money now and it would give us a bit more money to get through but I'm sure there's going to come another time where we have to do that again so you have to learn from that and do better and even with the hiring stuff like we we've got pretty good processes now for HR like we never had anything before but you still can't hire it's never just going to be perfect staff that work for you you just can't know people in the space of an hour that's right it's so hard yeah so you can you can do as well as you can but you never really overcome problems like that you just continue to get better at solving them I think yeah I agree Reese Lockhead asks would you ever consider opening a Black Ops theme pub or bar in another area or are you happy with just selling from HQ and BH2 yeah I don't particularly love this idea I know I know other breweries are doing it um for our brand, I, I don't particularly love it, but never say never. I, I just think it's not like hospitality isn't really in our DNA, Black Ops. Like it's like the tap rooms go really well. And I think what we have at the tap rooms is really unique and that works really well. But doing a venue where you're a bar competing with other bars, um, competing with our customers, I just think, you, you know, you need to have... It, it's so hard. I mean, th- these bars are just going in and out of business and they're all restaurants. These places that need amazing food, they need amazing service, they need to do an ama- amazing events. Like the fit out, the design needs to be really good, the product needs to be really good. It's just a whole new thing. And it's not... I think if we were to do another one, it would be around production. It wouldn't just be a bar. I just I just don't particularly love the idea of doing bars. And I know, I know other breweries are going down that path and I think that's cool to leave them to do that. But this, I don't think it's really for us. Cool. Nathan Wright wants to know how the stadium tap deals work, for example, Gage Roads in WA, and if it would ever be feasible to have a Black Ops pop-up or full-time tap at Gold Coast Stadium. It'd be almost impossible as far as I understand it. I think it's... it's um, I know the Gage Road one... Well, Gage Roads had been around for a very long time. They're also a very big listed company. Um, you know, they're, I think they're the... They're probably the third biggest brewer in the country, really, other than like that are actually owned in Australia. Um, I think their stadium deal is basically just a loss leader. Like I think they just make bulk beer for the stadium. They don't make any money on it. They just use it as a branding exercise, which they would say works for them. Whether it does long term, I don't know. Um, for, for our, Metric, was it Metricon he said? Or the, yeah. yeah. So Metricon have a big CUB contract. They've got a whole deck that's like a Pirate Life deck. CUB now own, you know, Bolter, Four Pines, Pirate Life um, and others. I, I just, I can't see them, you know, paying all that money to sponsor the whole stadium and then being like craft brewers come in here and, and get on tap. Um, it's going to be interesting in Australia because... In the US, that has happened. You, you, go, you go to stadiums, there's independent beer at these stadiums. But um, in Australia, like the big players have bought up so many of these brands already. Like it's, it's only really four or five years into this sort of like real craft beer boom. And the big brands are all gone, most of them. So it's going to be a different experience, I think, in Australia than it has been overseas. It's kind of, it's, it's a little bit scary in some ways because, yeah, I just, I can't see an opportunity for independent brands to get in on some of those big venues and it's not just stadiums it's um i mean it's even small venues like we got venues around here that have signed tap contracts that want to put us on tap that are telling us our product is better than what they're being offered they're telling us our product is cheaper than what's being offered and they can't put us on tap because they've got a tap contract with a big brewer Mm. and yeah the bigger the venue the more that happens and i mean it, it would require 
someone pretty courageous in one of those organisations to open that up to craft brewers. Yeah, I think one of the cool things about smaller breweries selling to like CUB or Lion is that you can then get a craft beer option at the stadium. It's if no you lot. consider it craft beer, yeah. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah, well, what is craft beer? <laughs> Why is that one of the questions? <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is good. It, it is good that, that like all these brews have been fighting against companies for not making good beer and the companies have now bought out all the companies that do make the good <laughs> beer. So I guess you could say for consumers it is good. It just makes it a bit hard for the independents. But um, yeah, I mean, I went to the surf club for years and never, ever drunk beer because they just didn't have any good options. Now they've got Pirate Life on there and Four Pines on there and I can have a beer when I go there, which is, as a consumer at the surf club, it's, it's good for me. Yeah. Jeremy Joseph James says, how do you approach keeping or managing the company culture that made Black Hop successful while scaling to the next caliber of, bre- of brewery? So balancing all the less sexy stuff that becomes more important, like safety, quality and records, etc. Yeah, it's really hard. Um, and I don't, th- I, don't think there's, I don't think it's actually a case of maintaining the culture because the culture a lot of times actually had to change at Black Ops. Um, I think if we maintain the culture at the start, we wouldn't be here now. So it's, it's sometimes just a case of being like, well, what, what does this company need to be like at this size right now? And what do you have to get rid of for that to happen? Or what do you have to get in for that to happen? Um, but yeah, key staff are a big part of it and good people and that's yeah there's nothing there's nothing i can think of that goes on that we've deliberately sort of said okay we're going to do some kind of staff perk thing so that the culture's good it's it's just genuinely caring about staff and getting good people who care about us has been the the way to do it yeah best bosses ever (laughs) craig maiden asks with the ever expanding distribution of the amazing beers you guys make where to next is it bh3 I do like the sound of BH3. <laughs> We've dubbed our third uh, lease up at BH2. We've called it BH3. Yeah. Um, oh, it's cool to get questions from all these people, by the way. These are all like people in our group and people who've been supporting us for a very long time. So that's cool. Craig's a legend. He's, he's always coming down and giving us some love. Um, no, we're, we're, we're going to do... We're trying to do something next year that's not BH3. Um I don't want to say on here what it is because I don't know if we are going to be able to do it yet. Um, but it's just a little bit different. Um, I hope we don't have to do BH3 for quite a while. Like we've got, we're probably at 10% potential capacity at BH2. So I look forward to the time where we're utilizing all the overheads we have there. <laughs> this is the most boring, <laughs> boring way to say it, but... We spent a lot of money to build this brewery. We want to fill that up rather than going and building another one. So For sure. Yeah. I, I'm not too excited about BH3, even though it does kind of sound cool. Sounds so cool. <laughs> um, Hendo, so Steve Henderson asks, what about an Operation Brewery 2 book? Yeah, another legend, Hendo. I, I think he probably just wants to write another foreword. Um, yeah, I, I don't really like the idea of doing another book either. I kind of think that um, the, the first one... I think is cool because it was written before we started the brewery. So it's kind of like before, before you do something like this, you don't really have any cynicism. You're just excited and you're like, we know everything. This is what we do. This is where you get the equipment. And that's kind of what people need if they want to start a business. Like when I started my first business, I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which is a really famous book. And it just like really motivated me to start a business. If I had read a book from someone who'd been in business 20 years and was just cynical about how fucking hard it is, I never would have started. 
So like I could I could write a book that's you know a practical book on running a brewery, but I don't think it's going to help anyone. It's not going <laughs> to motivate anyone to start. And um, I I think yeah I, I just I don't really see it as being something that I really want to do. Although having said that, I did get an email from someone who wants to write like a managing microbrewery book. So if it was done through like a publisher or something, I might do it just as a bit of fun. But yeah, yeah. I don't want to redo our book to make it more realistic because i think that kind of takes the fun out of it that's amazing i guess that's what this podcast is about and all the content that we put out on our blogs it's about managing the brewery in real time yeah there's lots of content we put out already and and to be honest like it's not like books kind of have to be or any anytime i consume a content uh, content like a book or a podcast or something it, it kind of has to be either like a bit inspiring or a bit funny or fun like story driven type thing like if it was just like practical posts on you know, how to hire and fire staff and how to upscale recipes. It's, I don't know. It's just kind of, that's not, that, that's not the kind of book I write. I wouldn't really want to write it because it just sounds boring. And, <laughs> I, and I don't really know who wants to read that either. David Fergie asks, did growing Black Hops into a leading brewery have any effects on your friendships with the other founders? Um, I don't think so. I think we're pretty good. I think we're kind of the same level friends we were when we started. I, pro- I probably probably know Govs. I mean, I always knew Eddie really well. We were best friends for a long time. I know Govs a lot more now and we're probably better friends than we were before we did Black Ops because didn't, I didn't know Govs that well at that time. We would just kind of see each other out and whatnot. But no, I, I, think, it's, I think we're pretty much the same. That's awesome. I love that. Matt Quinton asks, I've noticed your team have been able to pick up supply with some first choice and vintage sellers recently. As partners for growth, partnering with majors, this is a great strategy. Increasing from local to national supply, how does Black Cops partner with retailers like these? Yeah, well, I mean, there's, there's obviously work that goes into it. We've got Kernsey um, on that job specifically. Um, and we've been, you know, submitting for the range reviews that they do every year and trying to get in. But I think also a lo- it's got a lot to do with the kind of bottom-up approach, like in the stores. Like the people, customers are going into the stores asking for our beer and staff at the stores like our beer, they love our beer and they are asking their bosses to get it. So it's sort of like us going in and asking for them to stock us, but it's also coming up from within their organisation to get more craft beer, to be more relevant, to get local beer and um, that that just led to us getting a small amount of distribution in some local BWS stores, which pretty quickly went from like 20 stores to 40 stores to 80 stores to 100 stores to Dan Murphy's. Um, and then um, I guess Coles have just done this big rebrand of, of their first choice and the same thing is happening with them. We, we submitted for a range review. They're probably getting people going and asking for craft beer. We're one of the brands that people mention and the same thing's happening there. So it's, it's, it's a combination of both. It's not just knocking on the door, but there is that, but it's also actually creating beer that people want to buy. And I, I personally think that's, like I said at the start, the, the, the quality of the product influences all of this in ways that you can't really measure, but it's, it is always the most important thing. Mm, and it's always a really long process, isn't it, to get into retailers like that? Yeah, yeah. And it, it's, it sort of has to be too, because it, it changes so much. Like if you think back was what was it like august last year we weren't in any of them right yeah i think it was like september or something or after that yep yeah so around then do you think about like the stuff you do now with eddie with the schedule and like the distribution and the 
the organization that goes around the warehousing and all of that stuff that happens, the, the packaging, all of that stuff. It's taken so long for us to get that to a point where we can confidently supply someone who can move that much beer. And mm. that would not have happened if they were just to say, okay, you can supply all of Dan Murphy's stores overnight. And the quality is another one as well. You need to, to scale up to be able to send that much beer out and be confident in what you're sending. So the fact that it is slow, I think is necessary and, and that's a good thing rather than a bad thing. And, and we're, we're not necessarily trying to make it any quicker than it is either. Like it's good to get extra opportunities, but we also want to make sure we're selling enough beer to independents and we're selling most of our beer locally and we don't forget about the reason why people love the beer and the brand in the first place. Yeah. Um, Damien Morgan asks, what will the name for investors be for the second crowdfunding campaign? Bravo team. What about, <laughs> what about alpha team members who cough up for a second investment? Two star generals? Oh, that's cool. Um, I do have a name for them and I'm not going to tell you what it is because if I tell you what it is, it's going to give away what we're doing. So I'm sorry. I do like those names, but it's not, it's not one of those. Um, but it's still going to be alpha team. It's just going to have another word in front of it. <laughs> Um, Anthony Chansamuth. Oh, first one. How did Dan get those guns? Uh, just hanging out with Kernsey and just being inspired <laughs> every day to work out and go to the gym and get to his level. And that's, that's, that, and, and it's not just the guns. It's also the calf muscles. It's the same thing. Kernsey's such an inspiration. <laughs> um, Amph has uh, three questions. The first one, what's the philosophy and culture of the co-founders around risk and failure? Um, oh God, I, I, I feel like this stuff is like when you're in a company where it's everything sort of happened organically, like none of this stuff's very particularly well organized. Like we, for me personally, I feel like there's always a really, really, really high chance of failure anytime you run a business and I'm completely comfortable with that. It's not good when you fail, but I've failed so many businesses. It, it, it's not something that really surprises me when things go wrong and it's not something that I'm really scared of. Um, Eddie and Guz might be different because they haven't, probably haven't failed as many times as I have with, with businesses anyway. So I, I, can't, I can't, can't answer for them. But, but for me, the failure thing is not, like if fa failure, I think it's glorified in entrepreneurs and it shouldn't be, it's shit and it should be avoided, but it's, it's also always there and, and it's not something that I'm really scared of. Um, risk. Yeah, it's just another tricky one. I don't know. I mean, that you've got to, you've you've just got to take risks. There's just not really any way around it. I just, I just can't think. Like we just we just wouldn't have done anything at Black Ops if we hadn't like like everything we've talked about: building a new brewery, paying for designers to design the brand, anything hiring staff, anything you think of. We've always done on the risk that we're not going to be able to have enough enough money to be able to pay to do it. I mean, we we signed the lease on the brewery when we had no money in the bank. It was like a million dollar lease over the course of five years or whatever. Um, it was going to cost us at least $3 million to build the brewery. We had six months rent free. So we had basically six months to do it. Um, equity crowdfunding was illegal. So we had no, raise of, no way of raising equity funds. We, were, we, were, we didn't want to get in institutional investment. And tr tr also, I don't actually don't know how to do that. Like I don't really know. I didn't have any contacts in that world. I didn't really know how to do that. But I knew I didn't want to the banks were constantly rejecting us. Our own bank were the first to say no to any kind of finance. Um, and yeah, and that's the kind of risk we took to build that second brewery. So if, yeah, if you don't like risk, don't, don't do this. 
(laughs) What tips can you offer around making key decisions and choosing between competing priorities when it comes to growing a business? Uh, Just delegate them to Leah (laughs) and she can make them. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, oh God, I don't know. These are good questions, but they're kind of hard to answer. I mean, sometimes it's easier to go with like the, whatever's the most highest priority that's in your face. Yeah. But um, it's often not the right thing to do that either. You've got to think about what's right for the brand long term. So that's sometimes a hard thing. Um, sometimes you have to say no to things that you don't want to say no to. Um, sometimes you have to say yes to things you don't want to say yes to too. And yeah, there's not, I don't think there's really any rules to that. You just got to try to make good decisions and have, to be honest, have good staff who can make a lot of the decisions because um, nothing would ever get done if it was just us founders making decisions. And most, most decisions that have been made at Black Ops, not to make it sound like a, a full weird modern democracy company but like a lot of stuff that's happened since we started as a result of the staff that have made decisions and have done things you know we started it but the staff kind of grew it so having good staff that can i guess empowered to a point to make decisions but also will make the right one um is is a big part of it that you never really think of but it's like it's not like the founders make every single decision that happens here. That's not really how things work. Nothing would get done if that was the case. Yeah, side question from Amp's questions. How, how do those big decisions in the business get made? Do all three of you have to decide on something or how does that work? So what normally happens is there'll be one person who feels pretty strongly about something and the other two won't mind too much either way. So if that happens, you don't necessarily have a majority. Like if, if Eddie has something he feels strongly about, and me and Govs are like, well, I don't really particularly mind either way, then that's what we would do, even if it's not the majority. So that happens sometimes. Um, sometimes two of us will feel strongly and it's they're different and sometimes that's not the most enjoyable thing. And, and that's often when that happens, because people have different ways of communicating too. Like some people might not want to say that in the meeting, but then afterwards might bring it up later on Slack and it's like, all right, we didn't really actually resolve that, but we thought we did. So yeah, that happens a bit as well, but... Um, yeah, it's never, it's never, it's never like a, only a majority thing. Cause that wouldn't really work. Like you, like voting things don't really work like that. Um, it's more like people kind of fight for what they think is important. And then, yeah, that's, yeah, that's kind of how it works. But, but it's, it's not every decision either. Like there's so many decisions that just don't get made by the founders. Like there's only, like, I don't, I don't know half of the stuff that happens in production. It's only when something kind of goes wrong or there's, like, something interesting happening that I'll even know about it. Eddie knows almost everything that happens. Govs obviously knows everything that happens. But same as in the office and the stuff we do in marketing, they'll get involved sometimes. But, like, like the, you know, the designs and all that stuff, like, they, they often don't even see them until they get put on social media. Um, and that's pretty normal. Otherwise, again, we would just have a bottleneck where the founders are trying to make every single decision that, we, that would never work. Yeah, that wouldn't work. And last question from Amp. How do you and the team recognise contribution and effort by individuals in the team and celebrate success? Everyone gets to keep their job. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> what do we do? We probably could do more with this. Um, we have our staff one-year full-time beer. Yes, we do the we do the one-year beer, which is really cool. People like that. And... I was thinking now that we have our label printer, we could probably rebrew it every year rather than because because we do the one year thing, but then we don't do the two year or the three year. We're trying to think <laughs> of ideas. So, but or we could do something else. But yeah, we need to think of something to do. And we do like an annual Christmas party and have awards and stuff like that. We have, um, we do a lot of trips throughout the year and we don't have like a formal program for letting staff come on them, but we try to make sure that 
the right staff get the opportunity to come on some of those things, like go to Gabs or go to the beer awards. There's a, there's a lot of awards as well. So when we can, if we've got enough money, the brewers or the head brewers, you know, we'll be able to go to those awards. Um, we do things like team days where we do like brewery tours for different teams um, or team dinners, um, that kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah. There's, there's nothing nothing crazy, but also just making sure that people know when they and celebrating things in Slack, make, make, making sure we celebrate milestones, making sure people know when it's people's birthdays and when they do something good and achieve something and make sure people know they're doing a good job. Yeah. Josh Gable asks, do you see Black Ops in a similar vein as Brewdog, pushing and challenging a certain lifestyle of beer? I think what I want to ask is, will you start putting Black Ops pubs around the place like they have to promote and grow margins in the Black Ops philosophy? Could we see a move west to Perth to join that market? <laughs> well, I think I've answered the pubs question already, but no, I don't, I don't really see us as really anything like Brewdog. I, 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 I love Brewdog. I love what they do. I love their brand. I've always liked their content. I've definitely been inspired by what they do in terms of crowdfunding and content. They've done an amazing job at that and, th- and they never really get a lot of credit for that. They do get credit for crowdfunding, but not that much with content, but they've, they've been the best content marketers in the brewery game in the world forever. Um, so I like that aspect of what they do, but as a brand, I don't think our brand's got a lot in common with what they do. Um, I don't think it's a lifestyle. I just think it's good beer and I don't really overthink what it means to people. I just think we, you know, we make good beer we have a genuine organisation that we're trying to build and I don't think too much further than that on it. Cool. Well, that's all the questions for ambassadors. Is there anything else that you feel like you want to say or that we haven't discussed that you'd like to add? Yes. I, I, I was, I'm surprised you didn't ask me how people can vote in the Hottest 100. <laughs> hey, Dan, <laughs> tell us how people can vote in the Hottest 100. <laughs> well, thank you for asking. If people love what we do, they can go to blackops.com.au forward slash vote and vote for, we would like you to vote for Pale Ale because that's the one we think will do well and that's the beer that really turned our company around. Um, and But we would love for you to vote for any of our beers if, if that's your favourite for the year. And I think I would also say if you do believe in the importance of independence and companies like ours existing and not basically getting to the end of the road and having to sell to the people that we've been competing against the whole time, then this is a really good opportunity to, to support independent breweries because it's a it's an opportunity for breweries to get the marketing attention that the big breweries can get with money, but they can do it without money just by making a good product and rallying the troops around voting for them. So, yeah, I would like to shout out to any independent breweries in that and and consider voting for an independent one in that. If, if it's either Black Ops, that would be great, but if it's not, another independent would be just as good. Awesome. That wasn't planned, by the way. I just... I just want people to vote Sure, he's reading off a script. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for your time today, Dan. No worries. Thank you for interviewing me. That was fun. Yeah, anytime.